0: We are tonight in Judges 16, first three verses. You should have an outline there somewhere for you. But um, let's uh, open up in a word of prayer and then we'll get, get started. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for those that are willing to come out in the middle of the week and study your word and fellowship together and um, spend time together, Lord. It's so important as a church. And, and Lord, we pray um, that you would continue to just um, uh, guard our church against any kind of uh, sickness or infection. And and Father, we continue to pray for those who uh, may be gone through their own medical things, and we pray that you would continue to give them comfort and remind them of your presence with them. But tonight we just pray that uh, as we look at the first, just the first three verses here of this chapter, um, Lord, I pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts and allow us to apply the truths that we uh, learned tonight as we look once again at Samson and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we're in Samson chapter 16 verses 1 to 3. So I'm going to go ahead and read that and then we'll we'll get into the the text a little bit. It says Samson went to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute. And he went into her and the Gazites were told Samson has come here and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning. Then we will kill him. But Samson lay, and lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Um, a pretty incredible feat of strength <laughs> that he did. But the last glimpse, you remember the last time we were together, the last glimpse we saw of Samson was a man who seemed to be getting his act together a little bit. At the end of chapter 15, it says, and he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. And um, in the previous chapter, chapter 15, we saw him call upon the Lord uh, from a humble heart and humility and he prayed to the Lord and God delivered him from a uh, certain death through the great miracle we saw there and the story ends with uh, Samson judging Israel uh, for 20 years and apparently after a period of peace a period of service uh, Samson once again <laughs> Falls uh, again into his old ways and that's what we want to look at tonight so um, uh, Samson may have been a powerful man physically, which he clearly was, but he was really a moral uh, weakling, you might say. He may have demonstrated his power um, time and time again over the enemies, which which we've seen, uh, over the enemies of the Lord, but he was helpless against his own flesh. He just couldn't help himself. And um, Samson, one commentator said, Samson reminds Him of Achilles. And you remember Achilles, the Greek mythology. Achilles was the son of a a human king, uh, Peleus, and a sea goddess, uh, Thetis. And Achilles was the greatest, he was the bravest, he was the strongest, the most handsome soldier in his father's army, according to Greek mythology. And the legend goes that Thetis held her infant son by the heel and dipped him in the waters of the river Styx. Like the music group, and the magical powers of the river uh, rendered Achilles invulnerable in every part of his body—an incredible uh, invulnerability. But the only thing that wasn't invulnerable was his heel, and uh, because it hadn't been dipped in this water in the river. And that small little part of his flesh was vulnerable to attack. And as the story goes later on in the heat of battle, Achilles was struck in the heel by an arrow and was killed. And uh, that's where we get the idea, our Achilles heel, right? We all have something going on. And so we all possess those areas of our lives in which we are uh, vulnerable, I guess, to attack from the enemy. We possess that area of our walk with God which we are prone at times to fail, sometimes over and over and over again. Uh, the, re- the, the writer of Hebrews mentions this in he- in Hebrews chapter one, verse twelve, he talks about the sin which so easily what? Besets us, right? This sin that just won't go away. Uh, and the sin varies from person to person. It's not one sin, it's it could be anything. Uh, it could be uh, whatever the sin is in your life is your Achilles heel. And for Samson, his Achilles heel was uh, women and illicit sexual relationships because that's what happened over and over in his life. And for others, it might be a quest for fame, a quest for money, popularity, position, ambition, power, whatever it might be, but we all have some kind of a Achilles heel. For some, it might be pride or lust or selfishness, gossip, anger, anger. Um, You know, malice, you can go on and on, but you get the idea. Whatever that besetting sin is, whatever it might be for you, um, if you're not able to conquer it through the power of the Holy Spirit, which God has given to you as a believer, um, it will be, usually, it leads to your downfall. It doesn't end well if you don't get a a handle on it. Uh, Oscar Wilde, the British writer, very decadent lifestyle he was known for, He wrote this, I can resist anything but temptation. (laughs) And the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. (laughs) I mean, it sounds kind of crazy, right? Um, And that seems the motto that Samson embraced in his life. You know, what's the use? I'm just going to give in. Uh, And I'm sad to say it seems the motto for a lot of people in the modern day church even. Um, And the passage is a reminder of the great power that that. Uh, Sin holds over our life, even as believers. It's a reminder that we never really, in this life, completely defeat sin. It's always there, and it's always going to be there as long as we're in this fleshly body. Uh, It's in the depths of our nature. It's waiting like a cobra to strike at any moment and release its deadly venom into our lives. And this is a reminder that we have to be very vigilant, we have to be aware of, of sin's presence, uh, sin's power in our lives. If, if we're a Christian and we think that somehow we've conquered sin completely and it doesn't affect me, you're sadly mistaken. You're sadly mistaken. And it's a reminder that one moment of weakness, just one moment of weakness can cause us to fall, fall back into our old uh, sinful habits that we thought maybe were long dead. It just takes one little thing like that, and that's why, in First Peter, uh, he writes in First Peter chapter five, verse eight. He says, "Be sober-minded, right? Have your wits about you. Don't don't be frivolous about this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful." And then he says, "What? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour." And that's what we're up against. And not just once a week. Not just you know, once a day, every moment of every day, that's what we have to face. And and the passage that we're gonna look at tonight is kind of sad because it's it's a horrible way for someone to conclude twenty years serving. I mean he had you know, twenty years here of, of service and uh, he ends it this way. And so we just have to be reminded, I think as as believers, that we're never really beyond the allure and the power and the pool of Uh, sinful affections in our life it's always right there and it can be brought up in any moment satan only needs an inch in order to become your ruler and i think that that's a very important point We, we have to be very cognizant of the fact that any moment we could we could fall ephesians 4 27 paul says give no opportunity to the devil give no opportunity to the devil and uh so tonight we want to look at Samson and this shady lady that he meets up with, Delilah. But um, I, I want you to notice something here about, about uh, uh, Samson. Uh, first of all, his defilement in verse 1. Because there's, there's reasons why Samson falls back into this sin. And we're given it here in the very first verse. First of all, it involved a wrong address. What's it say? Samson went where? To Gaza. What was Gaza? Gaza was a Philistine city. It was filled with the enemy. Okay, He had no business going there. Uh, It was located near the Mediterranean Sea. It was situated on the main road that allowed travel between Egypt, Babylon, Assyria. So it was a very uh, commercial, uh, military crossroads. And if you know anything about places like that, at night bad things happen. (laughs) Okay, I mean, it it just does. Uh, And so it's it's very... uh, unreasonable for someone who's committed his life to the Lord to be found in such a a place. It was, uh, the the name Gaza means strength, and it was really the Philistine stronghold of the day, and it it was a place that was known for its wickedness and idolatry. When we were over visiting um, the Nelsons in Thailand, we got to go uh, to a place in Thailand that was pretty much sex trade capital of the world and you just walk around this place and they've got a church right downtown and you walk around this place and you just feel the the weight of the sin that is in this place i mean you you walk down the street and there's right there in in a shop like young girls just waiting to be bought by these old european men american men whatever it's just disgusting it's really I mean, the more we walked around, the angrier I got. And I thought, wow, God, what, how, how can this even... Uh, I, I couldn't minister there, that's for sure. I'd probably end up in jail. Because it's, you see all these, these men taking advantage of these, these young uh, women and young boys. It's just a really sick place. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 that, it's that wickedness, that idolatry... There's there's no place there for someone that would, you know, you wouldn't, as a believer, want to go there for vacation. That's just not the place you'd want to go. Because it does matter where you spend your time, I believe. And if you constantly find yourself in places where you're surrounded by um, sin, or even in a place where you can be tempted, okay, um, you're setting yourself up for some form of, of fall or failure, morally. And the Bible warns us to avoid those kind of places, doesn't it? Um, Where we might be tempted to sin. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 14 to 15. I'll just read it for you. But it says, enter not into the path of the wicked, nor go into the way of evil men. In other words, stay away. Avoid it. Pass not by it. Turn from it. Pass away. Don't don't go to those places where you'll be tempted. uh, In whatever your Achilles heel is. Some people will... Will will question you know, your, your refusal to go where maybe they want to go and they don't see a problem with it and they want to do what they want to do. But you know what? Your duty, first of all, is to God. Um, a lot of times, well, not a lot, but occasionally uh, we'll have people call the church and sometimes it's a woman and she'll want counseling. And, you know, I, I'll usually say, well, what's this concerning? And, you know, whatever it is. And, and, and usually somewhere in the conversation, I'll say, well, I have to check with my wife and see when she's available so she can meet with us. Well, why does your wife have to be there? <laughs> and right away, they protest. It's not of her business. Why why are, you, why are you bringing somebody else? I said, because I don't meet with women by myself, period. I just don't want to do that. I don't want to put myself in that kind of situation. And so... You know, they think, well, there's something wrong with you. No, there's nothing wrong with me. It's just that I, don't, I want to avoid that kind of a uh, you know, situation. And so you have a duty, first of all, to the God who saved you, do we not? You have a responsibility to your own soul to protect it from temptation. Um, it's, it's far better to bear the scorn of, of sinners than it is to be scarred by sin itself. And so we have to be aware of that. So, I mean, practically, you know, if you have an issue with alcohol, if you're an alcoholic, you should probably avoid. Places where they have beer and liquor. And you, know, you probably don't want to be going into the local liquor store, even if it's to buy a newspaper. Why? Because you're walking in to something that could potentially tempt you. Uh, if you're a drug addict, you should avoid the places where those kind of things are available. Um, and, you know, falling into that kind of sin doesn't always require a change of physical address like it did here with Samson. I mean, you know, you can go anywhere in the world on your computer or on your phone right so we have to be very 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 careful if you have a problem with gossip in your life maybe you need to avoid and be careful about who you're talking to or texting or phoning or whatever and so you know we learn a lot from the example of lot in the old testament his example is priceless to us As a matter of fact second peter chapter 2 verse 8 even brings up lot and it says if he rescued God, righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. This is Second 2 Peter 2.8. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and he heard. What did Lot do? Lot placed himself, he placed his family directly in the crosshairs of sin by moving to Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, he... he moved right in there and he paid a terrible price for it uh, so we have to be careful in those kind of things and it, secondly not only it involved the wrong address but it involved wrong attractions it says there that he there he saw a harlot um samson seems to have uh, a little bit of eye trouble he has a little little problem with his eyes um he had it before, and it seems it, it still is there, clearly. Uh, because he casts his gaze on the wrong things. And, and, and every time it leads him into sin. Every time. And we have to have a, a guard, a, you know, a, a filter, an eye gate, whatever you want to call it, that we allow um, over our eyes so that we don't allow certain things into our mind, into uh, our lives. And it's possible to, to be defiled even by the things we see without even physically doing anything. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, he says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has what? Has already committed adultery. You haven't even done anything physically yet. But if you've done it up here, as far as Jesus says, it's, it's a done deal. Um, because you've done it in your heart. And then he goes on, And he talks about this serious matter of of how important this is. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Now, obviously, that's hyperbolic language. But he goes on and he says, it's better that you would lose one of the members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. What's his point? There's no limit to the extreme measure we should go to to avoid sinful behavior or temptation even. Um, Even when I was a youth pastor, sometimes I'd talk to um, couples. I wasn't even married yet, but I remember talking to this one couple at First Baptist Church in Fremont, and the husband admitted he's, you know, kind of had a, a problem with um, back then it wasn 't the internet, but it was magazines and you know stuff like that and pornography and I said, "Well, okay, how many times do you have to get rid of this stuff? Where do you get this stuff? When, when do you fall prey to this you know And he was very honest, and he said, "Well, you know sometimes when i 'm come home from work, you know I like to stop and, and, and get something to drink, so i 'll go to this liquor store and you know and right behind the counter, they got all the stuff." I'm like, well, you're, you're walking into it every time. I mean, why would you continue to go there? You know, and, and that's what he's saying here. He's saying, hey, no matter what, in our day, you know what? Some guys can't have a computer in their house. They just can't. It's, they're not able to monitor. They're not able to put that filter over their eyes, and, and they find themselves going places they shouldn't. And so what do they do? They, you know, I mean, the idea of not having Internet in your house today is a pretty extreme measure. Some people don't have TVs. They can't deal with the commercials. I mean, there's a lot of things that, you know, can can draw us down that that path. And what Jesus says is, hey, go to the extreme measure because it it, is going to be worth it in the end. Um, And so in the Bible, men like Samson, men like Judah, men like David, Solomon, If you notice, there's kind of a common thing there. They're all led into sin by things that they looked at with their eyes. And so you have to take uh, steps. You have to be aware of that at least and, and, and set a guard for your eyes from the things that would defile us. And the Bible obviously gives us a lot of good information on this. Psalm 119, verse 37. Turn away my eyes from beholding vanity and and quicken uh, me in your way, Lord. Uh, We should seek the Lord's help in guarding ourselves in these areas. Uh, Job 31, verse 1. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? He made a covenant. Or Proverbs chapter four verses twenty-five to twenty-seven. Let your eyes look uh, right on, and, and let thine eye, eyelids look straight before thee. In other words, don't don't be wandering around, don't be glancing. Uh, Ponder the path of your feet, and let all the ways, all your ways, be established. Turn not to the right hand or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. And it's and, and sometimes we're just you know it could just be a little glance. And things start cranking. And it's not just a male problem either. Females have the same issue. Maybe not to the extent, because they're not as visual, but for the most part, they do. And so when wrong images are allowed to pass through our eyes, it will not be long before they what? They find themselves into our mind and into our heart. Um, You might remember the little song. It says, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see, for the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. And it only takes a glance, not just a, a, an innocent glance sometimes. You know, I heard heard one pastor say one time, you know, well, you know, if my wife and I are out driving around and stuff and, you know, say we're stopping at a red light and, and uh, you know, a beautiful woman walks by in a lovely dress, you know. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't have a problem saying, boy, boy, God did a great number on her. <laughs> and I thought, well, this guy is headed for trouble. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's kind of making light of, right? I mean, yeah, God creates beautiful men, beautiful women, whatever. Uh, that's fine. But even a glance, we have to be aware, especially if you're married, there, there's no, there's no fudge um, room there, I guess. And it won't be long from there until you find yourself being tempted and falling into sin. So we have to be careful. And that's why we have to guard our eyes at all times. Um, but thirdly there, not just wrong address, wrong attractions, but wrong alliances. It says, and he went uh, onto her, into her. Uh, Samson's sin was not an accident here. He was not merely a man overtaken by some snare of the devil. You know, He, he couldn't really blame the devil on this one. I mean, he walked right into it. Because Samson went to the wrong place, he was looking at the wrong things. And in this instance, uh, apparently, he was his own worst enemy. And there are some people like that. They're their worst enemy. And they contribute to their own fall. And then they look around and they go, well, what happened? You know. And so when we play around with sin, when we don't take it seriously, when we tempt ourselves, um, we really become the reason for our own failures. We We don't have any... Um, shouldn't have any reason to point to the devil and say, oh, the devil made me do it. That doesn't hold up. Um, it isn't God's fault that we fail, and sometimes it's not even the devil's fault. We, we can blame ourselves. We blame our sin on our own lusts. We sin because we allow ourselves to go in the wrong places after the wrong things. That's what the Bible teaches. Notice in, in James chapter 1 he tells us this very clearly in verse 13 to 15. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted of God. We know this verse, right? For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Verse 14. But each person is tempted, it says, when he is lured. You know, it's kind of a fishing, you know, you're know, you kind of reeling in the bait, and he's enticed. Another kind of alluring word. By his, what? Own desire. His own desire then verse 15 then his desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death and so you know when we when we fall down this path when we go down this path we can't just blame god we can't blame the devil we got to take we have to own it you have to own it and you have to realize okay i got a problem here i mean that's the first thing that you know they're they're taught people of substance abuse whether they're alcoholics or whether they're drug addicts or whatever you have to own it You have to be willing to say, you know what? Yes, I am an alcoholic, or I am a drug thing, or I am addicted to porn, or whatever. And then you can can make some progress after that point. But if you're unwilling to admit that, it makes it very hard to do anything about it. And Samson got into trouble here really because he was overconfident. He probably thought, hey, you know, I've been doing this 20 years. You know, he thought he could handle that pull of the flesh once again. He learned the hard way uh, that he was helpless against his flesh. And you know what? Uh, the lusts that lived there just overwhelmed him. And whenever we get to the place, I think, where we think that we have arrived spiritually somehow, uh, we are headed to a fall. Never get to the point, even in your, your Christian walk, where you think, oh, you know what? I don't, I don't need a daily prayer time. I don't need this. I, you know, I've been there, done it. That's that's on a dangerous road. Uh, Proverbs sixteen eighteen says, "Pride goes before what destruction, and a haughty spirit or a prideful spirit goes before a fall." We know that verse, but it also applies to our own spirituality. You know, um, except by the grace of God, there go I. <laughs> Should be our motto. Uh, First Corinthians chapter ten. Verses 12 to 13, Paul says, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands, what? Take heed lest he fall. Exactly. No temptation has taken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able to bear, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So we don't want to overlook the fact that Samson sinned because he allowed himself to be uh, with the wrong people. With the wrong people. You know, honestly, he would never have committed this sin if he had been around the people of God and at the house of God. It wouldn't have happened. But because he was in the wrong place, looking at the wrong things... With the wrong people, what happened? He fell headlong into sin. And the same thing can happen to you, the same thing can happen to me, if we're not careful. We have to be very diligent about these things. Um, You can't keep continuous company with defiled people without defiling yourself. That's why God tells us to what? Come out from among them, right? Be ye what? Holy separate. That doesn't mean we don't evangelize. That doesn't mean we don't go out and have, you know, non-Christian friends and things like that. But if that's the the, the major influence in your life, if that's where you spend a majority of the time, you're in trouble. You know, you're in trouble. And it, it happens all the time in the church. You know, people come in on Sunday and check the little you know, check. Yeah, I went to church. And you know, don't pick up their Bible the rest of the week, they're not around any other believers the rest of the week, and they wonder why they're struggling spiritually. The people you surround yourself with will influence your thinking, they'll influence your actions. It happens all the time. That's why the Bible warns us about being friendly, about being casual with those who are outside of Christ, the wicked, basically. Uh, Proverbs 22, 24, and 25 says, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. That's a way of saying, be careful who you're, you're around. Be careful who you're hanging out with. We've looked before at 1 Corinthians 15, Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts what? Good morals. Okay, It usually doesn't ever happen the other way. It really doesn't. And, you know, um, some of you who are single here tonight, beware of that. You know, if you're going to start dating somebody and you're a believer, you're a born-again Christian, you better make darn sure that they are. Because if they're not, and you get the, the cart in front of the horse, and you get emotionally involved with someone who's outside of Christ, you're just looking for trouble, heartache. And there's people in our church that have gone down that road, and they can tell you firsthand, don't do it. It's, it's not fun. And so, you know, you can't blame anyone but ourselves when we set ourselves up to sin in such a way. Uh, the fact is, some people are so far away from the Lord anyway, they don't even need to be tempted. Um, all they really need is an opportunity to sin. They're, they're just kind of given to it. And that's why we have to really set that guard over us. Uh, where, we do, do, where we go, what we do, whom we congregate with. Um, How we uh, manage our time and what we do with, with our time and who we do it with. All those things. And I'm not saying you have to be a holy huddle and us four no more and, you know, build a wall around your house and think you're some pious spiritual giant. I'm not saying that. You know, there's a lost world out there that's dying on its way to hell. So we definitely have to have contact with unbelievers. But. I guess the way to, to basically boil it down is if you're spending more time with unbelievers than you are with believers, I would be very careful. I would be very careful because you're putting yourself in, in harm's way. In harm's way. Second thing, that's Samson and his defilement. The second thing here in verse 2, we see his discovery. And while Samson was in the, mon, the company of this, this harlot, his enemies uh, discovered that he was in town. And they they set up a trap. Remember, this is a Philistine stronghold. So they have soldiers and, you know, probably intelligence and all this stuff. So they're they're wondering where this guy's at. They set a trap to capture him. And Samson thought that he would, you know, turn aside for a few moments of pleasure um, in this this area of illicit sexual relationships. And he thought that he could have his fun and just leave town It'd be all over. It'd be a done deal. Thought he would never get caught. When we sin, we usually don't think we're going to get caught either. I mean, you know, so, and we've all been in that situation probably. And so the truth is Satan uses our sins really to set us up for the fall. Satan's not stupid. And the passage really demonstrates how sin works in our lives to attack us and to to really bring us down. And the first thing here is something about sin surrounding work. Look at what it says here. It says the, the Philistines surrounded the place. They encompassed around him. That means that he was totally surrounded by the enemy, and he didn't. He didn't even really know it yet. They laid a trap for his capture, and and that's the way sin works. That's the way sin works. Um, I mean, some people look at Christianity as a as a way of life and say, "Oh, that's so restrictive. That's so old school. He, why would you even want to be part of that?" And they complain that. You know, the way of God is, is the way of no fun, and, you know, He's here to ruin the party, and it leaves us with no freedom at all, and allows us no wiggle room, and all, all those things. And I think what the, the critics fail to see is that the way of God, a life lived according to the Word of God, is really the life of true freedom. You're not looking over your shoulder, you're, you're, you're pleasing one audience. You don't have to please everybody else, you're just pleasing God. While the, the, the life of sin is, is, a, is a life of slavery, it's a life of captivity. Someone said sin is kind of like a boa constrictor. It encircles the lives of its victims and slowly squeezes the life right out of them. The freedom of the sinner is, is taken away, it's stolen away by the mental, the emotional, the physical. The spiritual toll of sin we don't think of that when sin is looking enticing to us We don't go down that road. We just think okay. This is going to be pleasurable This is going to be fun. This is going to be whatever but when you stop and think about it What are are the results of sin? Diseases addictions trauma financial loss ruined relationships destroyed families destroyed marriages shattered trust depression for some incarceration the limit of, of the freedom of living destruction, pain. The life of sin is not a life of freedom. It's not a life of reckless abandon. It's a life of profound bondage. Dark slavery. That's how Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2. If you look at verse 1, two, one he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you once walked, he's talking to Christians, reminding them from where they they came, what they got saved out of, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, he describes us as children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's what we were. And so we need to make sure that we understand how serious this is. It's not something to be joked about. And so sin is constantly working. He has a, it has a steady, steady work um, in our lives. It has a surrounding work in our lives. And that's the second thing here, the steady work. The Philistines, it says, laid wait for him how long? How long did they wait? It tells us all night. All night. They figured, hey, we got him surrounded. He ain't going anywhere. Uh, We can be here all night if that's what he wants. They were patient. They waited for Samson to leave the house. They weren't in any hurry. Why? Because time was on their side. Time was on their side. And you know what? It's a good example for us that sin is very patient. Sin is very patient in the way that it works in our lives. It will play its cards close to the vest until the sinner is hopelessly entangled in the sinful web. <laughs> and then you, you, you wake up one day and go, how did I get to this place? The sinner doesn't always feel the trap closing around them when they're living out their life of pleasure. And, and sin is patient. It can wait. And when the time is right, it will spring the trap and destroy the life of its victim. Most of the time, by the time the results of sin are known, you know what? It's too late to even escape. That's why constantly in the Bible it's, it's telling us just avoid the whole thing. Don't even play with it. Don't even go down that road. I mean, all you have to do is ask the chronic alcoholic if there's a, a sting in that liquor bottle that they drink from. Ask the AIDS victim if he feels the sting associated with his lifestyle. Ask the the, the girl who's promiscuous who will never know the joy of motherhood because she's been rendered sterile by a venereal disease. Ask her if she ever feels the pain of her sin. Ask the criminal who sits in jail behind bars if there's a price to be paid for his sin. All these people would have laughed in your face if you had tried to warn them of the dangers they faced when they were in the grip of their pleasure. They would have laughed at you. Now it may be too late, but they know the truth. They realize the pain that sin has caused in their life, and they're bearing out the consequences of it. It may take a while. Sin is patient. It may take a while, but sin will play its hand. It always does. It will always spring its trap, and the sinner will pay a terrible price for falling into sin's trap. And that's why in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 to 10, Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked, right? For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will what? will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And then he says in verse 9, let us not grow weary of doing good. You know, that's a good word. It's a good word for us today because you see so many people not doing good. In our government, in our society, in our community, they're not doing good. And yet, it's almost like they're being rewarded for it. It's like good behavior today is bad, and bad behavior is good. It's like everything's upside down. And if you think of it that way, you can grow very weary. You know, you can just come to the point of saying, I'm just going to go do whatever I want, because there's no consequences anymore. You see people running into Macy's stores and, and different malls and just stealing stuff, and there's no consequences. The police don't even come. I mean, you look at the southern border. It's it's crazy what's going on. It's very discouraging. So you can can really give up, and you can say, I'm I'm just going to not do anything. He says, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season, what? We will reap if we don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everybody, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See, what Paul wants the Galatians to know is that, you know, now is the time here. Now is the time, you know, to repent. Uh, the time to escape sin's bondage is now while there still may be time to escape the worst horrors of sin in your life. I mean, you're always going to bear some scars in your life from sin. That's just the way it is. You're going to bear scars in your mind. You're going to bear sc- scars in your spirit. But you might just escape with your life and your soul intact if you turn away now. Get out while there's still time is the message. Well, the third thing here, something about sin's silent work. The Bible says the Philistines were quiet all night. They weren't out there, you know, hooping and hollering. Hey, hey, Samson, we got you. No, they were quiet all night. They didn't know. They didn't let Samson know that they were They're lying in wait to capture him. They didn't tell him that at all. And that's the subtle nature of our sin. Um, It does not tell us the truth. It will not tell us the truth. It leads the sinner to believe that there can be a pleasure with no consequences. Advertisers tell us that alcohol use is fun. Tremendously fun. You can see birth control commercials explain how to have fornication without the nasty side effects of an awkward pregnancy. Even lottery commercials and other forms of gambling or whatever is an exalted way to kind of trick us into thinking somehow by, by buying a lottery ticket you're actually going to get rich. The facts are completely different. but we, It doesn't make any sense, but we just believe the lie sin never tells the truth sin never tells you the truth about the ruined health the empty wallet the destroyed lives the ruined marriages the broken homes the shattered dreams and the wasted years it leaves in its wake it won't tell you that because when you start there it's not too appealing honestly sin is is deceitful and we must take whatever steps are necessary to avoid it. And unfortunately, Samson didn't do that. If the sinner knew that what was waiting on them at the end of the life of sin, I don't know if they would ever take that first step on that journey. If you could see the picture at the end. Proverbs 16.25, it says, there's a way that seems right to man. (laughs) It seems right to man, but it's end is what the way to death doesn't end up in the right place Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 Jesus said enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads where to destruction it's easy and those who enter it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. You know, it's it's so important that we understand that to be a believer is an extreme privilege. You're not in the majority as a born again believer. You are not. According to what the Bible says, there's going to be a whole lot more people in hell than there are in heaven. That's hard for us to hear, but it's true. And that's why we need to even work harder. At sharing the gospel and living a life of purity before a lost and dying world so they can see something different in us. Well, the fourth thing here is something said about sin-slaying work. The Philistines says when it's day, that's when they're going to kill him. They said this to themselves. What was their plan for Samson? Death. That's what the plan was. The Philistines laid their trap and and they planned to capture and kill him. And you know what? Death is always the end of sin. It's always the end of sin. You say, "Well, how do you know that?" Romans six twenty three: For the wages of sin is what? What's it say? Death. It tells us very clearly. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Or James chapter one verse fifteen: Then desires when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown brings forth what? Death sin is destructive on every front and if the sinner does not escape he will experience death ultimately in hell separated from presence of god but under the wrath of god even if he does not if if he does escape by the grace of god he will discover that many things around him will have already died because of the life of sin you talk to believers who Came out of a tough background. They'll tell you firsthand. Yeah, I regret everything I did because there's 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 consequences to that people were hurt By my actions by the way I live my life by my selfishness by whatever And they'll tell you they're not they're not proud of it And they gotta they gotta take that to their grave with them Even though God has saved them graciously and and washed them and all that there's still it's still there Because sin kills joy, it it kills peace, it kills relationships, it kills marriages, it kills hope, it kills even churches, believe it or not, and even the human spirit. Sin is a killer. It kills everything it touches. No one escapes unscathed. But for those of us who put our faith, our trust in Christ, there's hope, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll be getting to this in a couple weeks, verse 54 to 57, It says, when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, what? Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, or O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're on the winning side. And once you understand that, we just have to live up to that potential through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the instruction that God's word gives us. I mean, I'm so glad that he can deliver us from a life of sin and give us a new life in him. You know, he doesn't just add Jesus to our life. Our life is so bad as a non-believer, as someone outside of Christ. He has to recreate us, really. He transforms us into a a brand new thing. That's what what the Bible says. Old things have what? Passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's how bad off we are. And I'm thankful that he will forgive all those who turn to him. That's that's a message of hope. That's a message of love. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful. He's just. Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And instead of clinging to the hope that God will forgive, you should seek his power to avoid sin altogether. And sometimes people get that backwards. They look at their Christian life and they, well, Jesus forgave all my sins, so if I go play over here in the field of sin, it's okay. I'm not going to lose my salvation over it. And we, we tr- treat it very lightly. If we would just live out Romans 6, verses 11 to 14, we wouldn't Necessarily need first John 1 9 Uh, Romans 6 verse 11 says so you must conduct your or consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passion Don't allow that to happen as a believer He says do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. That's his defilement, his discovery. In verse 3 here, his deliverance. The Philistines laid their trap. They're determined to capture him. They're determined to kill him. And if it wasn't for the intervention of the Lord, he would have been probably killed that night. Notice how the Lord delivered him from the enemies, the power of his deliverance. When Samson awoke, he got up and went out. He looked at the gates of the city, and it says he carried them. This is just incredible if you study this out. To the top of the hill that is before Hebron. This is an astonishing feat of strength. I mean, there's a lot of people that do a lot of interesting feats of strength. I don't know, if you go up, if you Google this, uh, some of these there is, is is what's going to come up. You just Google feats of strength. In 1798, a guy by the name of William Carr carried carried a 1,120 pound anchor one half of a mile. In 1895, Joseph Blatt, Blatt lifted 3,500 in 64 pounds. In 1900, William Pagel carried 1, 000, a 1,000-pound horse up a set of 12-foot ladders. I mean, can you even imagine this? It's crazy. In 1902, Lionel Strongfort became a human bridge and he supported 3,200 pounds of carload of people on a platform. It's amazing. It's, it's amazing. In 1920, Frank Richard, <laughs> this was kind of crazy, had a 104 cannonball fired into his chest from a 12-foot cannon at close range. He survived, by the way. He caught it. In 1957, Paul Anderson lifted a table of lead loaded with auto parts that weighed 6,270 pounds. I mean, those are, 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 are incredible feats of, of strength. But really, compared to what Samson did, that's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. I mean, Samson ripped up the gates. He ripped up the posts. He took the whole gate assembly out of the ground. I mean, you're not talking like this little, you know, flimsy bamboo gate. I mean, you're, you're talking about something of, of structure here. And he carried them 68 miles, almost 40 miles, all uphill, To Hebron. I mean, that's amazing. It's after the time he spent with his little (laughs) friend there. The weight of all this would have been in the thousands of pounds, yet Samson carried it as if it weighed absolutely nothing at all. And while his physical strength is very impressive, I think you would agree with that, It doesn't make up for the weakness of his own morals, is the point. Regardless of how we appear, sometimes on the outside, it's really the content of our heart that matters. It's what's going on in here. It's what's going on in here. Uh, Samson did not sin because he was physically strong. That's not why he sinned. He sinned because he was morally weak. Uh, He sinned because sin was in his heart he cherished it he allowed it to give it freedom to dominate his life unfortunately and unfortunately the same thing can happen to us you know you look around the room here there's a lot of most of us are believers some of us have been believers a lot longer than others some of us are mature in our faith some of us are immature but the one common denominator we have even even the best among us here are still sinners we're still sinners. We're sinners saved by what? Grace. Um, the best among us here are still capable of the vilest sins imaginable. And that's where we have to be careful with our own faith, that we don't look at a lost and dying world and, oh, how disgusting. I would never do that. I, oh, yeah, you would. The moment you think you wouldn't go down that road, that's, that's when you're very close to going down that road. <laughs> you know, Except by the grace of God, there go I our hearts can become fountains of evil that will poison the whole of our lives if we allow it. Jesus stated this in Matthew chapter 12 to the religious people of his day in verse 34. He says, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Verse 35, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And then in Matthew 15, verses 17 to 20, he says, do you not see that that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart? And this defiles a person, Jesus says, for out of the heart, comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, Jesus says. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And they were making a big deal about who, who ate what, you know. Um, and Jesus says, man, you're, you're so off the mark here. Well, the pardon of his deliverance here is the last thing I want to share with you. Samson's deliverance was the grace of God in action in Samson's life. He didn't deserve to be delivered. But you know what? Neither do we. Samson deserved to be caught by his enemies. He deserved the judgment, the chastisement that was coming his way for his actions. But it was the grace of God that allowed him to become aware of the plot, first of all, to escape before they could spring their trap and to carry off the gates of the city. It was the grace of God that allowed him to get away from the sinful situation alive in one piece. And this wasn't the first time that God had spared the strong man in the time of weakness. And that's because God is merciful, and He allows the opportunity for us to repent, to turn from our sins. And often He'll give us a chance after Chance after chance to turn back to Him for forgiveness and for restoration. And that's what He desires. That's what He desires from us. I mean, do you thank God for His enduring mercy, for His grace, for His love, his, his patient grace, and for the turning away of His wrath from us. But as is with Samson, and a lot of times it's true with us as well. The grace of God was not seen as a warning <laughs> to turn away from sin once for all, but the grace of God was seen as an encouragement for future sin. Sometimes believers have sin in their life and they think, eh, I'm not hurting anybody. It's not, you know, whatever. Got away with it, got away with it. And they just think, oh, God's just going to not, not seeing this. Oh, well, He is. What you sow, you'll reap. And having been spared so often in the past, Samson may have come to believe that somehow he could live as he pleased. And there'd be no consequences for his action because it seemed like God was always bailing him out. He was guilty, really, of what Jude 4 says, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. God is merciful to us, is He not? He, He definitely is. He allows us to turn back to Him Time and time again, when we blow it, we can go and we confess, he forgives. But there will be a limit to his leniency with his children, especially. And Samson is about to find out (laughs) that God will not always rescue him from the consequences of his sin. He's about to find out that that there's going to be disciplinary action, there's going to be chastisement that will come. And will bring with it suffering and hardship into his life. When we, when we treat God like a, a doormat, beloved, when we, we live like we please ourselves, we don't care about God, thinking that he's never going to judge us because somehow we're, we're cloaked in, in holiness, we're setting ourselves up for a disaster. When we come to the place in our own Christian lives, when we say, well, you know what, I've done it before and God let me repent and nothing happens, so <laughs> I'll just do it again we're headed for trouble. When we start to think that we're getting away with sin with no consequences, we had better look out because chastisement is not too far to follow. You must not think that just because the hammer did not fall today that it will never fall. Your sins will be found out, the Bible says. There will come a day when God's patience will be exhausted and the full force of your choices will fall on your own head there are are consequences there's always consequences attached to sin do not think for a moment that god will not allow those consequences to be brought to pass even in your own life hebrews chapter 12 verses 6 to 11 it says for the lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives it is for discipline that you have to endure god is treating you as sons for what son is there He says, whom his father does not discipline. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you're a Christian, a born-again Christian, and you're living in sin, and you're not seeing the disciplinary hand of God in your life, I would really cause you to pause and say, am I even a Christian? Besides this, he says in verse 9, Hebrews 12, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it has seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. For the moment of all discipline, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it revelation 319 says those whom i love i reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent and if, if samson teaches anything from these three verses it teaches us that the, the, the truth of the matter we must guard our hearts we must guard our hearts We must shield our lives from all the evil influences that would lead us away from God, not run into them, thinking somehow we're we're impervious to sin. It's not going to affect us. So watch the places where you go. Watch the things that you give your attention to. Watch the people you associate with. If sin is allowed to sink its fangs into your life, it will coil around you until it has choked the life right out of you. And it won't stop until it destroys you. And it destroys, by the way, everything else you love as well. And so, you know, the time to kill the serpent of sin is now. Uh, If you want to read a good book on killing sin, I would recommend that you pick up a copy of John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin. It's a short little book. But it talks about how important it is not just to, you know, entertain sin, but to literally kill it. And he takes you through steps on how best to do that. And it's not a process. It's not something that you can never end um, on this side of the glory of glory, because we're always going to be dealing with sin as long as we're in these bodies and in this sinful world. So we need to have a game plan. We need to have a go-to plan that works. And um, I think that little book would help you. If you're interested in that, let me know and I'll see if I can get, a, get, you, get you a copy. But... Um, well, let's close in a word of prayer, and then we'll just uh, have a little discussion. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather here as your church and a fellowship with one another around your word. Thank you for the example of Samson. Thank you for, that you did use him at the end of the last chapter, and it seemed like he had come around. But, Lord, it's just a good example for us that we never really arrive. That, Lord, any one of us is just a step away from falling into depraved behavior or sinful, sinful uh, behavior that would bring dishonor to your name, dishonor to our church, uh, dishonor to our family. And Lord, I pray that we would uh, keep in check um, the places we go, what we put in our eyes and our ears and the people we hang out with. Lord, we know that we are called to reach the lost. But Father, we, we have to be very careful that they don't, occupy too much of our time. Because your word is very clear that we shouldn't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And so it's a good, good practice to just figure out how much time am I spending with non-believers? How much time am I spending with believers? And where am I on that, that scale? And God will show you uh, how, to, how to manage that. Lord, we thank you for your word. And thank you for this time tonight. And we just ask that you bless, bless this time in Jesus' precious name. Amen.